Welcome to the Naked Security Podcast, everybody. This episode is taken from one of this year's Security SOS Week sessions. We're talking to Peter McKenzie, the Director of Incident Response at Sophos. Now, he and his team, they're like a cross between the US Marine Corps and the Royal Navy Special Boat Service. They go steaming in where angels fear to tread into networks that are already under attack and sort things out. Because this episode was originally presented in video form for streaming, the audio quality isn't great, but I think you'll agree that the content is interesting, important and informative, all in equal measure. Today's topic is incident response, a day in the life of a cyber threat responder. And our guest today is none other than Peter McKenzie. And Peter is Director of Incident Response at Sophos. Yes. So, Peter, Incident Response for Cybersecurity, tell us what that typically involves and why, unfortunately, you often need to get called in. So, typically, we're brought in either just after an attack or while one is still unfolding. Um, We deal with a lot of ransomware. And victims need help understanding what happened how did the attacker get in how did they do what they did did they steal anything and how do they get back to normal operations as quickly and as safely as possible and i guess the problem with many ransomware attacks is although they get all the headlines for obvious reasons that's often the end of what could have been a long attack period sometimes with more than one load of crooks having been in the network. Yeah, I describe ransomware as the receipt they leave at the end, you oh, know, and it is really, it's the ransom demand. Um, yes, because you can't help but notice it, can you? The wallpaper has got flaming skulls on it, the ransom note. Mm-hmm. That's when they want you to realise. That's them telling you they're there. What they wanted to hide is what they were doing in the days, weeks or months before. Most victims of ransomware, if we ask, when did this happen, they'll say, last night you know the encryption started at 1 a.m they they started getting alerts when we go in and investigate we'll find out that actually they've been in the network for two weeks preparing it's not automated it's not easy they have to get the right credentials they have to understand your network they want to delete your backups they want to steal data and then when they're ready that's when they launch the ransomware final stage and it's not always one lot of crooks is it there'll be the crooks who say, hey, we can get you into the network, they'll mm-hmm. be the crooks who go, oh, well, we're interested in the data and the screenshots and the banking credentials and the passwords. And then when they've got everything they want, they might even hand it over to a third lot who go, we'll do the extortion. Yeah, even on the simplest ransomware attacks, there's normally a few people involved because you'll have an initial access broker that may have gained access to the network. Basically, someone breaks in, steals credentials, confirms they work, and then they'll go and advertise those so someone else will buy those credentials from That's them. That's a dark web thing, yes. I imagine. And a couple of weeks, a couple of months later, someone will use those credentials, they'll come in, and they'll do their part of the attack, which could be understanding the network, stealing data, deleting backups, and then maybe someone else will come in to actually do the ransomware deployment. But then also, you have the really unlucky um, victims. We recently published an article on multiple attackers where one ransomware group came in and... They launched their attack in the morning around, I think it was around 10 a.m. 
four hours later, a different ransomware group, completely unrelated uh, to First Attack, launched. I, yeah, I shouldn't be smiling. They launched their. So, th so these guys, they didn't. The two lots of crooks didn't realise they were. They, they were didn't competing. know they were there. They both came in the same way, using the same, unfortunately, open remote desktop protocol. Two weeks after that, a third group came in while they were still trying to recover oh. encrypted, which actually meant when the first one came in, they started running their ransomware. It was uh, Black Hat or Alpha ransomware that ran first. They started encrypting their files. Two hours later, Hive ransomware came in. But because Black Hat was still running, Hive ended up encrypting Black Hat's already encrypted files. Black Hat then encrypted Hive's files that were already encrypted twice. So we basically ended up with four levels of encryption and then two weeks later, because they hadn't recovered everything yet, Lockbit came in and ended up encrypting those files. So some of these files I'm were actually encrypted I'm, five I'm, times. I, I mustn't <laughs> laugh. In that case, I presume it was the first two lots of crooks got in because they happened to stumble across or maybe buy from the same broker yeah. the credentials. Or they could have found it with an automated scanning tool. That bit can be automated, yeah. can't it, where they yeah. find the hole. And then how did the third lot get in? Did they same come in? Same method. Oh, not through a hole left by the first lot. No, same <laughs> method, which then goes to the, this is what you need to investigate. You can't just wipe exactly. machines and expect to sort of bury your head in the sand. The organization brought us in after the third attack. Uh, they didn't actually know they'd had a second attack. They thought they had one, and then two weeks later they had another. It was us that pointed out that actually four hours after the first one, you'd had another one you didn't even spot. And yeah, unfortunately, they didn't investigate. They didn't identify that RDP was open and that that's how the attackers were getting in. So they didn't know that that was something that needed to be fixed. Otherwise, someone else could come in, which is exactly what they did. So when you're brought in, obviously, it's not just, hey, let's find all the malware, let's delete it, mm -hmm. let's tick it off, and let's move on. When you're investigating, when you're trying to find out, well, what holes have been left behind by accident or by design, how do you know when you finish? Like, how can you be certain that you've found them all? I don't think you can ever be certain. In fact, I'd say anyone that says you're 100% confident of anything in this industry, they're, they're probably not being quite honest. Plus you, one to that. <laughs> you have to try and find everything you can the attacker did so that you can understand, did they set any back doors up so they can get back in, understand what they stole, because that could obviously have relevance um, for compliance and reporting purposes. So let's say that this has been a, a, a series of attacks or that there have been crooks in the network for days, weeks, sometimes it is months, mm -hmm. isn't it? Years sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> when you're investigating what could have happened in there that might leave the network less resilient in future, what are the things that the crooks do that help them make their attack both broader and deeper? I mean, one of the first things an attacker will do when they're in a network is they'll want to know what access they've got. The analogy there would be if they'd broken into your office building, mm -hmm. they wouldn't just be interested in going to two or three desk drawers and seeing if people had left wallets behind. They'd want to know which departments live where, where are the cabling cabinets, yeah. where's the server room, where's the finance department, where's the tax records. Which in, in the world of cyber means they're going to scan your network, they're going to identify names of servers. If you're using Active Directory, they'll want to look at your Active Directory so they can find out who's got domain admin rights who's got the best access to get to where they want to get to. If they need to create a new user, they won't just call that user, we got you at 99. They, they might. We've, but, we've seen ones where they literally just call, they create a new user, give them domain admin, and they've called the user hacker. 
but normally they will give they'll it a generic and, so name. So they'll look at your they'll look at your naming schedule and try and fit in with it. Yeah, they'll call it administrator spelled with a zero instead of an O, things like that. For most ransomware, it's not that advanced um, because they simply don't need to be that advanced. They know that most companies are not looking at what's going on on their network. They may have security software installed that may be giving them alerts about some of the stuff the attackers are doing, but unless someone's actually looking and investigating those alerts and actually responding in real time, it doesn't matter what the attackers do if no one's actually stopping them. If you're investigating a crime, let's say you found a, a gun inside your house, you can remove the gun. Great. How did it get there? That's the bigger question. Do you have software in place that's going to alert you to suspicious behavior? And then when you see that, do you actually have the ability to isolate a machine, to block a file, block an IP address? Presumably, the primary goal of your cybersecurity software will be to keep the crooks out indefinitely forever. But on the assumption that somebody will make a mistake sooner or later, or the crooks will get in somehow, it's still okay if that happens, provided you catch them before they have enough time to do something bad. As soon as you start getting humans involved, they get blocked, they try something different. If no one's stopping them, they're either going to get bored or they're going to succeed. It's just a matter of time. What 10 or 15 years ago would have been signed off as a great success, malware file, dropped on disk, detected, remediated, automatically removed, put in the log, tick off, mm -hmm. let's pat each other on the back. That could actually be deliberate. Like the crooks could be trying something really minute so you think you've beaten them, but what they're really doing is trying to work out what mm -hmm. things are likely to escape notice. There's a, a tool called Mimikatz. Some would class it as a legitimate pen testing tool, some would just class it as malware. It is a tool for stealing credentials out of memory. So if Mimikatz is running on a machine and someone logs onto that machine, it takes your username and password. Simple as that. It doesn't matter. You've got a hundred character password, makes no difference. It just sniffs it out of memory. It just yeah. Mm. So if your security software detects Mimikatz and removes it, a lot of people will go, Great, I'm saved, the virus is gone. The root cause of the problem you've got is not that that one file was detected and removed. It's that someone had the ability to put it there in the first place. Because it needs sysadmin powers to be able to do its work, doesn't mm -hmm. it, already? Yeah. I think the, the bigger priority should be that assume you are going to get attacked or you already have been, make sure you've got processes in place to deal with that and that you've segmented your network as best you can to keep important documents in one place, not accessible to everyone, don't have one big flat network that anyone can access. And I think that's perfect for attackers. You have to think in the attacker's mindset a little bit and protect your, your data. I have personally investigated hundreds, if not thousands, of different incidents for different companies, and I have never met a single company that had every single machine in their environment protected. I've met a lot that say they do, and then we prove ah. they don't. We even had a user or a company that only had eight machines, and they said, well, they're all protected. Turns out one wasn't. There's a tool called Cobalt Strike, which gives them great access to the machine. They'll deploy Cobalt Strike to... That's supposed to be a license-only penetration testing tool, isn't it? Yeah, we could have a whole other podcast <laughs> on my opinions of that. Um, but yeah. Yes. Let's so, say the crooks don't worry about... They're using a tool, so much, and they? they deploy that tool across the network. Let's say on 50 machines, it gets detected by the antivirus and the attacker doesn't know what happened. It just didn't work. 
but then two machines start reporting back because those two machines are the ones that don't have any protection on. Mm. Well, now the attacker is going to move to those two machines knowing that nobody's watching them. No one can see what's going on. These are the ones that there's no antivirus on there. They can now live there for as many days, weeks, months, years that they need to to get access to the other machines on their network. You have to protect everything. You have to have tools in place so you can see what's going on, and then you have to have people in place to actually respond to that. Because the crooks are getting quite organized in this, aren't they? Because we know from some of the fallout that's happened recently in the ransomware gang world, where some of the affiliates, the people mm -hmm. who they don't write the ransomware, they do the attacks, felt they were being shortchanged by the guys at the core of the gang and yeah. leaked a whole load of their playbooks, their operating manuals, yeah. which gives a good indication that an individual crook doesn't have to be an expert in everything. They don't have to learn all this by themselves. They can join a ransomware crew, if you like, and they'll be given a playbook that says, try this. If that doesn't work, try that. Look mm -hmm. for this, set that. Here's how you make a backdoor on all of those things. Yeah, the, en the entry bar is incredibly no low now. You can go onto, not even onto the dark web, you can Google and watch YouTube videos on most of what you need to know to start with this. You've got the big ransomware names at the moment, like Lockbit and Alpha and Hive. They have quite tight uh, rules around who they let in. But then you've got other groups like uh, Phobos ransomware, who is pretty much, they work off a script. and It's, it's almost like a, a call center of people that can just join them, follow a script, do an attack, make some money. And it's, it's relatively easy. There are tutorials, there are videos. You can live chat with the ransomware groups to get advice. It is unfortunately very easy. And we easy. know from, what was it, about a year ago where the, the Reveal crew put $1 million in Bitcoins up front into an online forum to mm -hmm. recruit new ransomware operators or affiliates. Yep. And you think, oh, well, they'll be looking for assembly programming and low-level hacking skills and kernel driver expertise. Mm -hmm. No, they were looking for things like, do you have experience with backup software and virtual machines? Yep. They want people who know how to break into a network, find where your backups are and ruin them. That's it. That, as I said earlier, you've got the initial access brokers that they might be buying the access from. Now you're in, it's your job as a ransomware affiliate to cause as much damage as possible so that the victim has no other choice but to pay. Let's turn this to a positive. Okay. As an incident responder who generally is getting called in when somebody realizes, oh dear, if only we'd done it differently, what are your three top tips? So the three things you can do that make the biggest difference. I'd say the first one is get around a table or on a Zoom with your colleagues and start having these sort of tabletop exercises. Start asking questions of each other. What would happen if you had a ransomware attack? What would happen if all your backups were deleted? Mm. What would happen if someone told you there was an attacker on your network? Do you have the tools in place? Do you have the experience the, and the people to actually respond to that? Start asking those type of questions and see where it leads you because you'll probably quickly realize that you don't have the experience and don't have the tools to respond. And when you need them, you need to have them ready in advance. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. I think a lot of people feel that to do that is preparing to fail, but not doing it, which is failing to prepare, means that you're really stuck because if the worst does happen, then it's too late to prepare, you, isn't you, it? You By definition, preparation is something you do up front. Don't read the fire safety manual while the buildings are fire yeah. around you. And with, particularly with the ransomware attack, there could be a lot more to it than just 
what does the IT team do? Because there are things like who'll talk to the media, who'll put out official statements to customers, mm-hmm. who'll contact the regulator if necessary. There's an mm-hmm. awful lot that you need to know. And secondly, as I mentioned earlier, you do need to protect everything. Every single machine on your network, Windows, Mac, Linux, doesn't matter, have protection on it, have reporting capability. Oh, Linux is not immune. Malware. Linux ransomware <laughs> is increasing. Well, also Linux servers are often used as a jumping off point, aren't they? The big area for Linux at the moment is things like ESXi virtual host servers. Most ransomware attacks nowadays for the big groups, they will go after your ESXi host servers so they can actually encrypt your virtual machines at the, the VMDK file level, meaning those machines won't boot. Your instrument sponsor can't even really investigate them that well because you can't oh, even encrypt the whole, vir- the, it's like the whole virtual machine. Fully encrypted disk. Yeah. Ah, so they will get one. in, they'll stop the VM, scramble the file, mm-hmm. probably remove all your snapshots mm-hmm. yep. and roll back. So, yeah, you do need to protect yeah. everything. Don't just assume. If someone says, oh, all our machines are protected, take that as probably inaccurate and ask them how they verify that. And then thirdly, accept that security is complicated. It's changing constantly. You and your role, you're probably not there to deal with this on a 24-7 basis. You probably have other priorities. So partner with companies like Sophos and like MDR services. Have people that do That's this managed detection, managed detection and response. And response. So, People 24-7 monitoring your network. If you can't monitor so your network... So it's not just incident response where it's already something bad has happened. It could include something bad looks like yeah. it's about to happen. Let's head it off. This is the people that in the middle of the night, because you don't have the team to work on a Sunday at 2 a.m., these are the people that are looking what's going on in your network and reacting in real time to stop an attack. They're looking for the fact that somebody is tampering with the expensive padlock you put on the They're board. the 24-7 security guard that's going to go and watch that padlock being tampered with, and they're going to take their stick and... <laughs> and again, that's not an admission of failure, is it? It's not saying, oh, well, if we hire someone in, it must mean we don't know what we're doing about no, security. It's an acceptance that this is a complicated industry, that having assistance will make you better prepared, better secured, and it frees up some of your own resources to concentrate exactly. on what they need to concentrate on. Peter, I think that's a upbeat place on which to end so i would uh, just like to thank everybody who has listened today and leave you with one last thought and that is until next time stay secure